It now seems that David's power is to be consolidated, reuniting the 12 tribes of Israel. Thinking that Ishbosheth will be a hindrance to this reunion, Banna and Rechab hatch a murderous plan against their Benjamite king. This is the sixth sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. A roll covenant reading coming from Second Samuel and chapter 4, the entire chapter, chapter 4, and then moving to one verse in chapter 5, verse 1. Second Samuel 4, then chapter 5, verse 1. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning, by inspiration of God, the prophet writes. And when Saul's son heard that Abner was dead in Hebron, his hands were feeble, and all the Israelites were troubled. And Saul's son had two men that were captains of bands. The name of the one was Banna, and the name of the other Rechab, the sons of Rimon, a Birhothite, of the children of Benjamin. For Beeroth also was reckoned to Benjamin. And the Beerothites fled to Gitam, and were sojourners there until this day. And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame of his feet. He was five years old when the things came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it came to pass, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. And the sons of Rimmon, the Beharite, Rechab and Banna went and came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who lay on a bed at noon. And they came thither into the midst of the house, as though they would have fetched wheat. And they smote him under the fifth rib, and Rechab and Banna, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he lay on his bed in his bedchamber, and they smote him and slew him and beheaded him, and took his head and get them away through the plain all night. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David to Hebron, and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy, which sought thy life. And the Lord hath avenged my lord the king this day of Saul and of his seed. And David answered Rechab and Banna, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Beharite, and said unto them, As the Lord liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity? When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought that I would have given him a reward for his tidings. How much more, when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed, Shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they slew them, and cut off their hands and their feet, and hanged them up over the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the sepulchre of Abner in Hebron. Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron, and spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. The writer of the Hebrews Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26 through verse 30. By the same Spirit, the Apostle writes, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. 
of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified in holy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. David's power is now being consolidated by the providential orchestration of God through the assistance and cunning of Abner, Saul's war chief. Now, when the news of Abner's death reaches Saul's son Ishbosheth, he becomes fearful almost to the point of being non-responsive. Now, this news, however, didn't only affect Ishbosheth, but it trickled down to the entire nation of Israel. And we read this in chapter 4, verse 1 of 2 Samuel. And when Saul's son heard that Abner was dead in Hebron, his hands were feeble, and all Israel, notice, not only was the king, Ishbosheth, becoming feeble and frightened, but all of Israel, the entire nation, was troubled. And so the question which must be raised is why? Why did Abner's death so impact Ishbosheth and the entire nation of Israel? Well, one obvious reason is that Ishbosheth, as we've seen already, was a weak ruler. Abner knew this, Israel knew this. He was a weak ruler who was very insecure in his position as leader of the Israelite nation. He was not really a leader. At best, he was a figurehead, but he lacked the will and the strength to lead the people of God, the Israelites, and the Israelites knew it. They knew what they had as a leader. Abner was the real force, of course, behind Ishbosheth's reign as king. He was also, Abner was also the unifying power for the nation of Israel. It wasn't Ishbosheth, it was Abner. The problem that both Ishbosheth and Israel had was that they were lying on a man, Abner, to secure them and not God. So, when, of course, when Abner died, everyone was troubled. Who's going to lead us? They failed to look beyond the obvious and trust that God would protect them no matter who was in control. And so, whenever a nation looks to a man as their hope, security, and prosperity, as many Christians do today, They make themselves vulnerable for disappointment, fear, and anxiety because men will disappoint. Reliance upon human leadership, whether it's political, economic, or military, will always leave a people in dire straits. So focusing on a human savior distracted Israel, and it distracts everyone from focusing on God who alone can save. Israel was famous for this problem. They were famous for this position Remember, first they initially relied upon Saul to deliver them from their enemies. They looked to a man. They sought for Saul to secure them a position in the world, to bring them prosperity, which he failed to accomplish. In fact, the reverse had happened. Not only did he fail to bring them prosperity, he brought them into into bondage from his tyranny. Now, once David came on the scene, they looked to him. Remember, when he was in the house of Saul, David comes on the scene, a new man, fresh blood, They looked to him, at least for a time. When he was in the house of Saul, they looked to him because he was in Saul's good favor. So they shifted from Saul, who had slain his thousands, to David, who had slain his ten thousands. They were a fickle people. And being a fickle people, they then departed from 
idolizing David to following Saul in his insane and mad attempt to assassinate David. So they go from Saul to David, back to Saul, because they're fickle. They don't know who to go, who's ever in control, who's ever seemingly in control of the nation, they're going to gravitate toward them. After Saul is killed in battle, they follow the same pattern. They follow the same pattern of looking to follow a man and they look to, maybe they look to Ishbosheth only because he was Saul's son, but they were really looking to Abner. Since Ishbosheth was unworthy to lead, Abner was secretly sought after as the hope and security of the nation. Adam Clark explains it this way. He says, Abner was their great support, and on him they depended. For it appears that Ishbosheth was a feeble prince and had few of those qualities requisite for a sovereign. And Ezra knew that. It was no secret, as it is no secret today, not only here in America, but in the nations of the world, that American leadership is feeble, like Ishbosheth. We might, we might switch our go Brandon to go Ishbosheth, because that is what we have before us. And the people knew this. They knew that Ishbosheth was a weak man. Whenever Israel or any nation for that matter looks to a man, especially a man, whether he's Abner or Ishbosheth for hope and confidence, they are destined for disappointment. Now consider Israel's track record, their past track record. They were prone to idolatry. Political and military salvation was their hope. Christians in America must also be careful not to follow Israel's pattern. They must be careful so as not to hope in a man to deliver them whether he's an Abner or Ishbosheth. Well, we might look to the Lord to give us a man for our benefit, like a David. It is God whom we must ultimately rely upon for the means of deliverance. Israel was an idolatrous people, which brought them to this point in their history. Now, verse 2 introduces us to two of Ishbosheth's military captains, Banna and Rechab. We see this in verse 2 and verse 3. They were part of the Benjamite tribe. Now, curiously, but with purposeful intention, verse 4 interjects an introduction to Jonathan's son, Mishboseth. Now, remember, these two men, Rechab and his brother, these two men were the captains of Ishboseth's army. Obviously, as we'll see in a moment, they were assassins, which tells us that Ishbosheth was not a man who was able to judge character wisely. But in verse 4, it seems as if this is almost a parenthesis. As we are getting into the mix of this very intriguing story of an assassination of the king of Israel, it seems as if God sticks in the middle of this verse 4. And Jonathan, almost coming out of left field, and Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame of his feet. He was five years old when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it came to pass as she made haste to flee that he fell and he became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. More on this young man later. Now what we have before us, here in verse 4, and perhaps the reason is to give us a prelude of what is to come. 
What we have as before here is the generational legacy of Saul directly connected to Ishbosheth, and the generational legacy of Jonathan directly connected to Mephibosheth. In a very interesting way, albeit twisted, David is able to honor the requests of both Saul and Jonathan concerning the protection of their family lineage. While Saul's legacy was not to be honored directly through his son Jonathan or Ishbosheth, it will be honored indirectly through Saul's grandson, the son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth. And this is very, very important. Because if you remember, the actual oath to bless the lineage of Saul and Jonathan's progeny was a direct promise. It was a covenant oath that David made to both these men. And he is bound to that oath. After his humiliation, Saul confesses this in 1 Samuel 24, 20-22, where he begs David, if you remember, he begs David to save alive his tribe through his generation. Notice, 1 Samuel 24, 20 and following. And now behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand. Swear now therefore unto me by the Lord that thou will not cut off my seed after me and that thou will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swear unto Saul. David swears unto Saul that he will abide by Saul's request. And Saul went home, but David and his men got up unto the hold. So David is swearing to Saul that he's not going to destroy his tribe. Once the situation concerning Ishbosheth's inability to lead Israel against any of their enemies and even against the possibility that David would assault them, Banna and Rechab hatch a gruesome plan. Verse 5 and following. And the sons of Rimmon, Rechab and Banna went and came about the heat of the day, in the middle of the day, to the house of Ishbosheth. Now remember, it's about noon here, the heat of the day who lay on a bed at noon, and they came thither into the midst of the house, as though, notice they're very cunning, as though they would have fetched wheat. And they smote him under the fifth rib, and Rechab and Banna, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he lay, Ishbosheth, lay on his bed in his bedchamber, and they smote him and slew him and beheaded him, and took his head and got them away through the plain all night. Note the facts concerning the situation. Now it seems as entering into the house of Ishbosheth was a common thing. The men find him at noon lying on his bed in the middle of the day. Seemingly the man Ishbosheth was lethargic. I would even think with the knowledge of Abner's death that he was quite depressed. Staying in a bed at noon, even if it was a hot day, is not becoming of a man who is supposed to be a leader of God's people. He should have been about the business of his kingdom, but he was not. He was slothful, and sloth is unbecoming of any leader, any warrior, any king. And this fact might have convinced Vanna and Rechab even further that Ishbosheth had to go. Here's a depressed man, a man who's lying on his bed in his bedchamber at noon when he should be out and about giving them extra validation to kill the king. Now, it also must have been very customary for them to gather wheat during the day, since Ishbosheth probably thought nothing of their visit. 
It wasn't as if they, they never came to him. They were the captains of his army. And they come in, as probably they did at other times, and that would take him off guard. So being taken off guard, the men then take opportunity to assassinate him and cut off his head as proof of his demise, as proof of their victory over the apostate, lethargic, depressed king. Now, Ishboseth's beheading was very symbolic. It was very symbolic during those days as well. It still is symbolic, scripturally speaking, symbolizing his removal as Israel's king. They taking his head were saying that he is no longer the king of Israel. He is now no longer responsible with leadership responsibilities because he had no leadership capabilities. And they're going to bring his head to David declaring him the new king. By slaying Ishbosheth, these captains thought that they could forge an alliance with David. They might have thought that David was going to move against Israel. They surmised that David was like them. They surmised that David was a, a power-hungry, vengeful individual, calculating military tyrant, desiring power and a kingdom through whatever means possible, even if it, even if it was to destroy his own brethren, Israel. But they were wrong. They miscalculated. They entirely miscalculated the man David. Obviously, they were either forgetful or were not privy to the event between Saul and David in the cave when David would not even put so much as his hand to touch the Lord's anointed. They might have also been ignorant of David's dealings with the Amalekite who claimed to slay Saul after he was mortally wounded because he too was touching the Lord's anointed. In David's mind, Ishbosheth was the Lord's anointed. By taking the situation into their own wicked hands, Banna and Rechab, murderers as they were, were in for an unpleasant surprise. So bringing the head of Ishbosheth to David, which must have just entirely astonished and shocked the man, they declared the following, verse 8. They brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David to Hebron and said to the king, You think about how this is all playing out. These guys are so full of themselves. They're proud. Look at what we did. We killed the king. We killed the Israelite, slothful, depressed, no good for nothing king. And we're going to bring him to the true king. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David the Hebron and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth. The son of Saul, thine enemy, which sought thy life, and the Lord hath avenged my Lord the king this day of Saul and of his seed. You see, we're doing the Lord's work. We're killing the king. Is there not something you'd like to say to us? Consider their first miscalculation. They wrongly identify Ishbosheth as David's enemy. In David's eyes, Ishbosheth was really not his enemy. Like his father, he was God's anointed. Even though Ishbosheth was of Benjamin and David of Judah, they were no less related as Israelites. They were related. They were brethren. And so these two men present the head of Ishbosheth to David, his kin. Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy. The second miscalculation, they connected Saul and Ishbosheth, thinking that if Saul was seeking David's destruction, therefore 
So was Ishbosheth, but Ishbosheth wasn't seeking to hunt David. That was that was a fabrication. Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy, which sought thy life. And in that assumption, they were also very wrong. And this is a lesson for us. We ought to never assume that another Christian is our enemy unless it is proven to be so beyond the shadow of a doubt. Nor should we assume that they wish to kill us or destroy us or slander us. We'll know by their fruits. The third miscalculation was that they thought their action was God's action. Notice, they're saying, the Lord has done this. And the Lord has done this. And yet their actions were vengeful. They were taking personal revenge because they didn't want to be attacked. Remember, they're captains of the of Ishbosheth's army. They're going to have to go toe-to-toe with David, the giant killer, who had Abner's good favor. And now they're afraid. And the Lord hath avenged my Lord the king this day of Saul and of his seed. They had no divine sanction here. And David knew that. In this declaration, they insult David on two counts. Number one, they claim that their actions were ordained by God and that they were doing God's business by murdering a defenseless man, a depressed leader of Israel, a depressed man, let alone the fact that he was a king. Secondly, they were also eradicating the generational legacy of Saul to which David had sworn to protect. What is David going to do now? He can't, he can't fulfill his covenant oath. He had promised to continue for Saul's legacy. And this must have infuriated David. As a response to these murderers, David reminds them of his actions. Notice he goes back into history. He reminds them of his actions against the Amalekite who had lied to David that he had killed Saul thinking that David would reward him. Remember, the Amalekite did not kill Saul. But he thought that if he told David thinking that David was a vengeful man that he would reward the man for killing Saul. Notice 2 Samuel 4, 9 and following. And David answered Rechab and Benah, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Beerite, and said unto them, As the Lord liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity. When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took... You see, you thought you were bringing good tidings. This man thought he was bringing good tidings. And I told him, I took hold of him, and I slew him in Ziklag, who thought that I would give him a reward for his tidings. Notice how cunning David is. He knew exactly what these men were about. How much more, when wicked men have slain a righteous person, notice he's identifying who they are, as well as identifying who Ishbosheth is. How much more when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed, shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? Now this must have shocked these men because they're, they're there before the king and I'm sure that his whole entourage, David's entourage was with him and this is a public thing. They're bringing the head. They're coming into fanfare. They're saying, look at what we did. We are the conquerors for David. And this must have shocked them. It was a total reversal of what they had expected. Notice David's argument. First, he testifies of the Lord's protection during his entire trial with Saul. As the Lord liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity. It's as if he's saying, I don't need you to help me. 
I don't need your action, your vengeance to protect me or deliver me from any of my enemies because the Lord has proven time and time again perfectly and righteously to deliver me out of the hand of my enemies. I don't need you. Next, he recounts his dealings with the Amalekite that claimed to kill Saul, whom David considered God's anointed. When one told me, verse 10, Behold, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings. I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought that I would give him a reward of his tidings. David knew that these men sought for some sort of reward for delivering Ishbosheth's severed head to David. Their motive was not God glorifying, it was self serving, not God glorifying. You know, when we pray in precatory prayers, we are praying the destruction of God's enemies for God's glory, not for our vengeance. Not because, oh, I, I don't want this or I don't want that. Or this person is, is bad and he's, he's after me. I'm going to pray against that person. No, no, no. It's for God's glory and God's glory alone. That's what imprecatory prayers are all about. Not self-serving, but God glorifying. These men were self-serving. They failed to understand that vengeance belonged to the Lord. And it was God that had to take Ishbosheth's life if God was going to take Ishbosheth's life. Bena and Rechab were not counseled by God and David knew it. They were not counseled by God to take Ishbosheth's life. They acted on their own accord. The differentiating factor between what these men did and what the judges of Israel did, and that's one question you might say, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Didn't the judges of Israel kill in order to deliver Israel from the enemies? And the answer is absolutely. But there's a differentiating factor here. When the judges assassinated the enemies of God, they acted at the behest of God. These men acted on their own for their own reward. They wanted a reward. David even knew that. Whereas the judges acted in behalf of God for God's glory and for the liberation of God's people against pagan tyrants. Ishbosheth wasn't a pagan tyrant. He was a little boy. He was a meek little boy, depressed on his bed in the heat of the day. He wasn't a threat to David. He wasn't a threat to anyone. He was probably more of a threat to himself because he was so weak and people wanted him dead like Banna and Rechab. So you cannot compare what the judges did to what these men did. They did it for vengeful reasons. Thirdly, David then accuses these men of two things. One, killing a righteous man. Notice he calls Ishbosheth righteous. Secondly, they did it in a cowardly fashion. How much more when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed shall I require your blood at your hands? Within David's declaration is a question which is actually a preliminary warning as to what David will do to these assassins. How much more? In other words, how much more wrath shall be done on those people that do these things so wickedly in comparison to what was done to the Amalekite that killed Saul? You're in for a worse thing than that Amalekite. At least the Amalekite did not kill a man who was of his own bloodline or even from his own nation. He was killing a man, if he did kill the man, which we know he really didn't, who was a battle warrior, not laying on his bed in a cowardly fashion. How cowardly is that? Finally, David asks a rhetorical question. Because these men are now on trial for their lives. He says this, Shall I not? In other words, what do you think? What do you think? 
Shall I not therefore require His blood at your hand and take you away from the earth? You don't deserve to be living in this world. That's a very harsh statement. This was not going to be a simple execution. David is asking these men to judge themselves according to the indictment that David just pronounced. So after concluding his indictment, David then instructs his servants to execute the assassins. Notice verse 12. And David commanded his young men, and they slew them, and cut off their hands and their feet, and hanged them up over the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the sepulchre of Abner in Hebron. Now this was not a simple execution. It was not just a simple cutting off of the head, as grotesque as that may be. In the case of the Amalekite, David simply cut off the head. In this situation, he cuts off the hands and the feet and then hangs them up over the pool in Hebron. And one might say, well, what is that? Well, how is that worse? Well, Scripture uses, often Scripture uses hands and feet to point to some spiritual truth. For instance, the hands are a symbol of the will or the intentions of men and the activity that results from it. The hands of mankind are what the mind dictates. Either the hands will do well or wickedness. They will either do good or they will do evil. Hands are used to either hurt or heal, to give life or take it. Hands are actionable things. In Hebrews 12, 12, when the Hebrew writer admonishes the saints to lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, he is telling the Christian not to be discouraged. Don't stop doing well with your hands. Don't stop being actionable for the kingdom. Don't be discouraged, but rather be encouraged by acting faithfully according to the commandments of God. And he takes this directly from Isaiah 35, 3, where the prophet says, Strengthen ye the weak hands and comfort the feeble knees. Note how both the hands and feet are in view, where the hands represent the will and the actions that result from the will. The feet, in this case the knees, are the part of the body that acts as a locomotion for the feet, also speak of the application of the will. So the hands of the will and the feet locomote the individual to act in God's behalf. So when Jesus healed the man with the withered hand, he was restoring the man to godly intentions with the ability to perform it. When he healed the man who was lame from his youth, he was restoring his ability to go where God sent him as to accomplish whatever task God commands. So you have the hands, the withered hand, and the guy lame, because the man who is called of God has to perform the things that God commands. All of Christ's healing miracles, in one way or another, every one of them, in one way or another, point to an aspect of man's sinful nature and the ability of Christ to heal it. Consider Matthew 11, verse 5. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Each of these physical diseases are symbols of a spiritual problem. As 
Children of Adam, as a result of the fall, mankind is blind to the reality of truth, lame in that they cannot do anything to gain salvation, leprous, signifying that man by nature is entirely spiritually unclean, deaf in that they are unable to hear the truth, possessed by every evil imagination imaginable, and dead in that they are dead in trespasses and sin, and finally they are totally impoverished without any spiritual worth whatsoever. Every one of those physical maladies have a spiritual Reflection. However, by the intervention of Christ, his people are able to now see the truth for what it is. They're able to walk where the Lord sends them, sanctified and pronounced clean by virtue of the atoning work of Christ. They're now able to hear what the Spirit is saying in the word of truth. They are resurrected to the newness of life from the dead. They're purged from the dominion of the evil inclinations and power that has possessed them because of the fall of Adam. And finally, we are made rich by the riches of Christ. Every one of those physical maladies were healed to show a spiritual truth. Now, while all of the Lord's healing miracles were actual physical healings, each one has a gospel thrust. Furthermore, God had foreordained each of these sicknesses for the express purpose of highlighting the many aspects of man's fallen nature, which is totally depraved on so many levels. Consider the testimony of Deuteronomy 29. God here is explaining that whenever an individual, family, tribe, or nation turns from the Lord in a rebellious fashion to serve other gods, and that's what man does, or set himself up as God, which is idolatry also, God, in his holiness, brings upon that individual, family, tribe, or nation the curse. This is what God did to Adam when he rebelled. God brought upon Adam and his entire progeny the curse, resulting in spiritual sickness and death, which manifested itself as physical sickness and physical death. Let me say that again. God brought upon Adam, after his fall, and his entire progeny the curse, resulting in spiritual sickness and spiritual death, which manifested itself as physical sickness and physical death. Observe the warning in Deuteronomy 29. Moses is speaking to Israel about the nature of their covenant obligation. Now remember what Paul says about covenant breakers. Everyone's a covenant breaker. By nature, in Adam, they are covenant breakers. But notice what Moses said beginning in verse 10. Ye stand this day, all of you, before the Lord your God, your captains of your tribes, your elders and your officers, with all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and thy stranger that is in thy camp, from the ewer of thy wood unto the drawer of thy water, that thou shouldest enter into covenant with the Lord thy God and into his oath which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day. Everyone's involved. That he may establish thee today for a people unto himself, and that he may be unto thee a God, as he had said unto thee, and as he had swore unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Notice verse 14. Neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, but with him that standeth here with us this day before the Lord our God, and also with him that is not here with us this day. Everyone is obligated. For ye know, verse 16, for ye know, how we have dwelt in the land of Egypt, and how we came through the nations which ye passed by. 
And ye have seen their abominations and their idols, wood and stone, silver and gold, which were among them. Lest there should be any among you, man or woman or family or tribe, whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God, to go and serve the gods of these nations. Lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. And it come to pass, when he hear the words of this curse, that he bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of my own heart, to add drunkenness to thirst, the Lord will not spare him. But then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord shall separate him unto evil out of all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law. Notice verse 22. So that the generation to come of your children that shall rise up after you and the stranger that shall come from a far land. Notice everyone now is brought into this obligation. And the stranger that shall come from a far land shall say when they see the plagues of that land and the sicknesses which the Lord hath laid upon it and that the whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and burning that it is not sown nor beareth nor any grass groweth therein like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Admon and Zeboam, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath, even all nations shall say, Wherefore hath the Lord done this unto this land? What meaneth the heat of this great anger? The men shall say, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord of God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. For they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they knew not, and whom he had not given unto them. And the anger of the Lord is kindled against this land to bring upon it all the curses that are written in this book. So you see, God here is explaining what he will do when his covenant is violated, as it was in Eden by Adam. And as a result of Adam's violation, all kinds of sicknesses resulted, all stemming from this covenant violation. And so whenever we read about the healings that Jesus did to those with physical illness, we ought to reflect on what they signify as concerning man's spiritual depravity. Moreover, we should also consider that we too were sick with every one of these sicknesses. You know, it's not like we just were blind or we just were deaf or we just had a withered hand. We had them all. We had them all. It's a comprehensive picture of a man. All of these spiritual sicknesses are in each and every one of us. We must consider that we are sick with every one of these sicknesses because of our natural fall in Adam. And without the great physician healing us, we too would remain sick and without any hope of recuperation or reconciliation before God. Now David is also concerned that if he does not execute these treacherous men, there would be blood guilt upon the nation. They murdered Ishbosheth, God's anointed. So he knows that he has to kill them and he has to kill them speedily. But now we have another problem. If David was so convinced that these men had to die for the murderous deed against Ishbosheth, whom David identifies as a righteous man in the same way, if you remember, in the same way that he identified Abner, why not then execute Joab? So now we see another crack in David's armor. A hypocritical crack in David's character. While he would kill these men, he would not kill Joab. 
David then proceeds to cut off the hands and feet of these assassins, pointing out that both their will and their actions were evil, and since these are the offending parts of the body, they will be removed from the rest of the body. And then he hangs them up for all to see. In respect for Ishbosheth, David buries his head near Abner's sepulchre in Hebron, where Abram had built the altar after entertaining the Lord on the plains of Mamre and where Sarah was buried. So he places them with his fathers. And this is where also God had his priests build a city of refuge. So he gives to Ishbosheth a burial place of the highest caliber, of the highest honor. A sacred place. Hebron, a sacred place of great importance. And it is here where David buries the slain king out of respect for God's anointed. Now, as a result of these events, God gives then all the tribes of Israel to David as the rightful reigning king over God's people. And this is what we read in verse 1. Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron and spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. David will now be able to keep his promise of honoring Saul's legacy, showing himself as a trustworthy man of his word, ensuring respect for God's anointed by giving Ishbosheth an honorable burial alongside of honorable Abner. Now, these acts of compassion, mixed with David's understanding of justice, resonate with all of the tribes of Israel, proving that David is God's ultimate anointed one. This is David, God's man, and they knew it. And as a man of capabilities, leadership, compassion, and capabilities and skill, he's also looked at by Israel as a man whom Abner saw as a great leader, but also as a man that could be trusted. And as a result, with one heart and one voice, speaking words of the most intimacy, Israel forges an intimate alliance with the shepherd king by declaring that they are now bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. We shall consider this next when we return to our exposition on the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.